Chapter 6 of A Theory of Monads Outlines of the Philosophy of the Principle of Relativity. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Curtis K. A Theory of Monads Outlines of the Philosophy of the Principle of Relativity by Herbert Wilton Carr. Chapter 6 The Moment of Experience. And then he drew a dial from his poke, and looking on it with lackluster eye, says very wisely, It is ten o'clock. Thus may we see, quoth he, how the world wags. Tis but an hour ago since it was nine, and after one hour more twill be eleven. And so, from hour to hour, we ripe and ripe, and then from hour to hour we rot and rot and thereby hangs a tale. Shakespeare Consciousness, or pure knowing, accompanies a very infinitesimal portion of our whole activity, and seems attached to it by a very inconstant bond. It is certainly not the whole monadic activity. Only in the higher monads does it exist at all. If we agree with Leibniz in describing the whole monadic activity as perception, then we must allow that perception is not only possible where consciousness is absent, but for the most part, perception is altogether devoid of consciousness, that is, of consciousness in the pure sense of knowing. In us, consciousness appears as a halo of illumination playing round the focal center of our activity. It is intense at the point and at the instant of progressing action, but it fades away in a penumbra as we move from the focal center. It seems to have no dividing line. It is very intense and concentrated when our action demands effort or has to deal with a new and unwanted situation. When the progressing action is ordinary and habitual or automatic, consciousness is relaxed and dispersed. Actual consciousness or knowing seems concerned with our activity at the focus where the action is forming, to be gathered together and concentrated on the progressing action. It appears, indeed, as though the action itself produced a kind of phosphorescence called forth by the nature and need of the action itself, and as though the intensity of the illumination were relative to the need. We may then describe consciousness, in its specific meaning of knowing and awareness, as an intensity at the focus thinning off till it fades away at the periphery, and neither at the focus nor at the periphery having any clear outline or distinct division. Or, in other words, consciousness is distinguished internally only by its degree of tension or concentration. When we consider the content of this consciousness, or the action which it illuminates, consciousness then itself seems to be distinguished by its clear and distinct outline. The chief aim of knowing seems to give precision to the form and matter of what is known. If knowing is the indefinite light dispersed or concentrated, the known is that which the light serves to delineate. Knowing and knowledge, consciousness and content of consciousness, are not two things brought into relation, but one thing internally distinguished. And the distinctiveness of knowledge characterizes knowing. The clearness of obscurity of the content of consciousness characterizes consciousness. We represent, in fact, consciousness as itself divided crisply into moments of experience, which, when distinguished as now and then, 
are conceived with definite, precise, and absolute outlines. Consciousness may seem incapable of delimitation into moments. Just as flowing water seems incapable of resolution into distinct drops, but as flowing water is decomposable into drops, so is consciousness resolvable into moments on any principle and according to any order. We have therefore another and opposite character of consciousness. It is gathered into moments with each its own cognitive content, its own emotional quality, its own feeling tone, its own perfect individuality. Each moment of experience corresponds with the actual center of activity in the progressing action of the subject, but it marks a distinct and definite state of progress of the action, a state which, when passed, is accomplished and unalterable. It seems, therefore, that consciousness or knowing is itself articulated. The joints may not be easy to trace, and the association of states may be in a measure indefinite, but they are clearly marked off from one another and exclusive. We have therefore a second characteristic of consciousness. Consciousness consists of states, only one of which is present. Every present state of consciousness is separated by a distinct and definite outline from every remembered or anticipated state. And the quality and content of its present state will in some form attach to it when it ceases to be present and is only remembered. In this twofold characteristic of the individual consciousness, first, that it has only internal distinction and difference in degrees of intensity, and second, that it consists of states exclusive to one another and different in kind, we may see a close and significant analogy with individual existence itself. Every individual creature in his range of activity is distinct and separate and exclusive and therefore different in kind from every other individual and yet every individual is only a focus of the activity of a reality which has no divisions or boundary lines and which differs only internally in the degree of its tension or extension. No one with our modern worldview and the knowledge which science has developed, whatever particular theory of our origin and destiny he may hold, can doubt that the living individual is one with all that lives and with all that has lived. Every living form, animal or vegetable, is the expression of an activity which is not theoretically or abstractly or collectively one activity, but essentially and indivisibly one. Whether life be a property of certain forms or combinations of inert matter under certain special conditions, as some suppose, or not, it is hardly disputed that the actual phenomenon of life is one in its origin and in its manifestation. Yet this activity manifests itself in myriad special forms, each possessed of that absolute exclusiveness which belongs to the moment of experience in the individual himself. If this analogy hold, if it be really the case that in the moment of experience we have not merely a phenomenon repeated in myriad centers of activity, but the very principle of life itself. If the moment of experience be to the individual what the individual is to the universe, then it follows that the situation of consciousness at the center of our system, at the point of focal intensity, and the consequent inconceivability of transcending the system and viewing it from without, so far from being a disadvantage and handicap in our effort to comprehend reality 
is a positive privilege of philosophy, enabling us at once and with certainty to know reality as it is in itself. In a moment of experience, then, we have the actual focus of individual activity. The activity which is spread over the whole life of an individual is there seen at the point at which action is progressing. By studying it, we are turning our attention on the very center of reality we are seeking in philosophy to understand and raising the metaphysical problem of its ultimate nature in its clearest and most definite form. What, then, is the moment of experience? It is the present moment, the moment in which we are actually experiencing is contained. As distinguished from an abstract mathematical moment of time which has no content at all, whatever we experience is now, and only what is now is immediate experience. But the word now, as used in ordinary discourse, is vague. Anyone unexpectedly asked to say what length of clock time he associates with his moment of experience would probably hesitate and be in doubt whether to assign to it three or four minutes or something less than a second. The moment of experience is not vague, however, when its content is considered. It is then sharply distinguished from all other moments. It is the moment during which experience is sense experience. It is the only moment of experience which may be analyzed by the psychologist as it occurs, and the experience which occurs in it is the only experience which exists as immediate experience. It is in the moment of experience, therefore, that the mind and the world are immediately related. This moment has duration, and yet all that occurs within it is present. Nothing that occurs within it is past or future. It is altogether now. No part of it is then or when. The moment is also distinguished by the special character or quality of its content, sensation. But it is indefinable otherwise than by reference to the experience itself. The moments of our past which we remember, or the moments of our future which we anticipate, contain remembered or imagined or inferred sense experience. In the present moment only is the experience actually sensed. These are familiar facts, and the problems they give rise to are familiar problems. There is the problem of the relation of psychological to mathematical time, or, as some prefer to state it, the problem of the distinction of mental time from physical time. Also, there is the problem of the ultimate nature of sensation and its relation to other forms or modes of knowledge. There are problems of psychology as well as problems of philosophy, but why psychology is concerned to make clear the distinctions they involve in order to free its subject matter from confusion. The psychological interest being the definition of terms and classification of empirical facts. For philosophy, the problems are vital. They go to the very root of the question of the ultimate nature of knowledge and its relation to reality. The philosophical importance of these problems, and not their mere dialectical interest, should appeal to us. The whole possibility of a consistent theory of life and knowledge depends on the power of philosophy to solve them. And the metaphysical solution seems to me clearly to depend on our power to interpret, or rather, to make explicit what is implicit in the concept of a moment of experience. I will begin with a particular problem on the common sense plane, a psychological problem which involves no principle of philosophy at all. When we see a shooting star, we have the visual sensation of a luminous line drawn across a more or less extensive region of sky. 
It endures a very short, though appreciable, time, and although it seems to begin to appear at the point at which it began to appear, there is a certain time during which the whole line is simultaneously present to our consciousness, otherwise it would not be experienced as a line. It appears to us, when we describe it, as though a star previously fixed in the firmament or having suddenly come into view had moved across the sky, leaving a trail of light behind it, and that when it had reached the end of its journey and before it had disappeared, the whole trail was present to sense. We believe that this is an illusion of the senses. That is to say, that what appears to sense does not actually exist, and that that is explained by the faculty of the senses have of retaining or of remembering what has excited them. We believe, on what we accept as scientific evidence, that when the trail is present to consciousness, nothing in the physical world is stimulating the sense organs. In fact, that the trail of which we are conscious has no physical reality external to the organism corresponding to it. We believe that the external reality is a point of light, not a line of light, and that whether the movement of that point is due to its own translation or to the translation of its observer consequent on the Earth's movement through space, or to both, the point always was in only one position at one instant and not simultaneously at every position in the line. Were, then, our sensation of the falling star strictly limited and rigorously correspondent to the actual conditions of the physical cause, we should never be able to have the ordinary experience of it. Were our consciousness to begin and cease when the physical occasion begins and ceases, there would be no duration in the psychological meaning, no continuity of the past, no carrying on of the past into the present. Consciousness would be of the instantaneous present, and this would be a point without duration. Assuming the occasion of the sensation to be as science teaches, we have to explain the illusion in the sensible appearance. I can think of only three ways in which a psychologist might suggest an explanation. First, he might suppose that it is due to the mechanism of sensation and that this includes some sort of contrivance such as the photographer's sensitive plate, but not necessarily material. Something like what older psychologists imagined when they called the mind a tabula rasa. Our sensations would be of the impressions made upon it, and these being a mechanical effect would not be restricted to the actual duration of their cause. What we sense would be the marks or impressions left, not the actual cause of them, and these impressions might exist after the cause had ceased to exist. Secondly, he might suppose that the line of light is not a pure sensation, but a combination of sensation and memory, that, in fact, it is only the point and not the line which is sensed and that the line is really made up of our recollections of the sensations of light when it was at the different points in the line. Or, thirdly, he might suppose, and this is, I imagine, the usual explanation adopted in the textbooks, that the mind has a faculty or power of retaining sensations for a short but appreciable time after the excitation has ceased, and hence excitations, which physically are a true succession, one past before the next is, may coalesce or overlap in sensation. Some sensations may be simultaneous, at least as to parts of them, although their excitations are not. 
I think all three explanations are wrong. What renders them, in my opinion, one and all futile is the assumption which underlies each, that the experience of movement or change is not itself a simple sensation, a single sense datum, but something which can only be explained as a relation of numerically distinct sensations, or at least of numerically distinct sense data within a sensation. All sensations, in my view, is of change. Movement or change is immediately given to us in sense experience. The change from A to B is not experienced as two sensations, one of which is first A and the other then B. First A is not only present when then B is future and then B is not only present when first A is past, but both are present in an indivisible sensation. And the distinction is an after result of reflection and intellectual discrimination. Before I try to formulate and defend this thesis, I will give a specific reason for rejecting each of the three explanations I have indicated. The first explanation, that we truly sense the line, although there is no line in reality, because the line forms part of the mental picture which represents the reality, is a theory which appeals to common sense on account of a somewhat striking analogy. A moving point, such as we suppose the shooting star to be, appears to be a continuous line in the photograph. This seems to suggest that the retina may perform the same function as the sensitive plate in photography. The analogy is very striking when we consider the structure of the special sense organs, particularly those of sight and hearing, and the functions of their various parts. A photographic camera is a simple replica of the mechanical apparatus of the eye, by which rays of light from the external scene are condensed by the lens to form a small image on the sensitive retina. In like manner, the waves of sound are condensed in vibrations on the small, tense membrane which forms the drum of the ear, a mechanism imitated in the receiver and transmitter of the telephone. If the formation of an image of the external scene is a necessary condition of the perception of the external object, and if it is this image which is the object of the sensation, then it seems natural to account for the difference between the inferred cause of the sensation and the sensation by the conditions of the formation of the image. A moving point in the external scene might be supposed to form a line in the image, as in fact does happen when we photograph a changing scene. Is there such an image intermediating between the external reality and the mind? Psychologically, there is no ground for supposing it and, so far as theory of knowledge is concerned, no advantage in supposing it. The problem of knowledge is not simplified by supposing the object of knowledge to be a picture of reality projected on a sense organ rather than the external reality itself. Philosophically, it would complicate the problem of real existence by substituting a representative for a presentative theory. The only ground for supposing that the object of visual sensation is an image of reality and not the reality is the fact that theoretically we can obtain an image behind the lens of the eye and also that if we look into the eye of another we can see reflected back to us the image there formed. But because an image always exists theoretically and because it can be reflected back to another it does not follow that it is or could possibly be 
an object to the mind itself. Not only is the image we may see in the eye of another person never the image that the other person sees, but there is no reason in the fact that we see it to lead us to suppose that the mind must be conscious of an appearance of reality distinct from reality itself. We may therefore reject the view that a picture of external reality is the immediate sensed object and that this picture may have characters which the original has not. The second explanation is that the line is not really sensed at all, but that only a point in the line is sensed. That the moment the point has moved its position, the sensation produced at that spot has ceased and a memory image has replaced it. It may then be supposed that quite recent memory images are as vivid as sensations, or so nearly so as to be indistinguishable from them. Hence the line is supposed to be simply a fusion of quite recent memory images with the actual sensation. Such a view will not stand any psychological test. By every criterion of sensation, the line is sensed, not memorized. A memory image is under control in a way that a sensation is not. I can call it to mind, keep it in mind, let it pass out of mind. I have no control over a sensation. I am dependent for it on the actual stimulus of a sense organ. Judged by this criterion, the line is a true sensation. There is no such difference between one point and another as there is between sensation and memory. But the memory image of the line when I remember it is entirely different in the nature of my experience from the line when I sense it. Were part of the line of memory, I ought to be able to keep it and prolong it indefinitely, or at least to keep it in mind until fatigue should overcome me. I cannot do this. There is, moreover, no difference of quality within the line. It is only the duration of the experience which enables me to imagine the possibility of a difference. The mark of sensation is to be actually present experience in the meaning that there is present modification of the organism. As any sensation which endures has a beginning and end, it seems possible to deny that the beginning is still sensation when the end is reached, because it is then past not present. Such an argument would defeat itself by depriving sensation of all content whatever. The sensation would merely be a point marking the limit of memory. The third explanation I can best illustrate by a quotation from Herbert Spencer's Principles of Psychology, Volume 2, I-86. It is a familiar fact that all impressions on the senses, and visual ones among the number, continue for a certain brief period after they are made. Hence, when the retinal elements forming the series A to Z, different sensitive points on the retina, are excited in rapid succession, the excitation of Z commences before that of A has ceased, and for a moment the whole series from A to Z remains in a state of excitement together. The quotation is from an argument to prove that the notion of space may arise out of the notion of simultaneity, and that simultaneity may be the direct sense experience of a rapid succession. It is very apposite to the present case, and illustrates exceedingly well the problem of the perception of change. It seems self-evident that if sensation be instantaneous, we must exclude it from whatever is past, and yet if nothing within the sensation is past, how can it have duration? Hence the attempt to account for the direct consciousness of change by supposing that sense impressions last longer than the stimuli which excite them 
so that a rapid series of stimuli are a true succession, each over before the next is, while the sense impressions they cause overlap and are experienced as simultaneous. To avoid misunderstanding, it should be remarked that this lasting or enduring of the sensation beyond the duration of the stimulus is not the technical meaning of the terms retention and retentiveness in psychology. Retentiveness in psychology refers to the power of remembering a past sensation, not to the power of prolonging a sensation in present experience. What then is the reason for rejecting the view that the sensation of the line is due to the retention of the sensations of the points so that some have not ceased when others have commenced? How far it may be physiologically true that the experience of simultaneous visual points, such as the series of points in a luminous line, is due to an excitation of numerically distant points on the retina, I do not know. But that successive excitations of different points overlap seems to me to bring us up against formidable difficulties. In the first place, it supposes the retina immobile. But, as we know, the eye moves, and therefore, if the eye follows the moving point, one point of the retina will be alone continuously excited. And in this case, it would seem we ought not to see a line, but an increasingly brilliant point. And in the second place, what is still more important, were it proved true of one sensation that in one respect, namely duration, it does not correspond to its exciting cause. What ground should we have to argue that it corresponds in any respect? In my view, the explanation of the appearance is neither physical nor physiological, but psychological. We are conscious of a rapidly moving luminous point as a line of light, not because all or some of the points in the successive series excite sensations which overlap the other points in the series, but because the whole series is within the moment of experience and therefore a present sensation. The moment of experience is limited in duration and limited in discrimination, but within the moment every point of a series, whether it be within or beyond the limit of discrimination, is present to sense, whatever be its relation of before and after to the other points of the series. A point or instant is not past because it is not before another which is present, nor is it only present when the preceding member of the series is not present. It is present while it remains within the moment of experience, and so long as it is present, it is not even fading away. The moment of experience has within it no distinction of past and present, but it has within it the distinction of before and after. The limit of its duration is where memory takes the place of sensation. The limit of its discrimination is where before is indistinguishable from after. Within the moment, whether the interval separating two points in a succession is discerned or not, each point is present and sensed. No point is remembered or imagined. So far, I have not touched on philosophical difficulties. I have tried to think how psychologists might deal with a purely psychological problem without raising questions of the validity of knowledge. Before I leave the psychological consideration, I will try and indicate exactly in what the difficulty lies and what to me seems the way of escape. A sensation is only, wholly, and always present. The object of a sensation, the sense datum, has for its essential mark that is given at the present time. Yet though it is present, it seems that it must have within it what is not present but past. 
A movement or change may be a sense datum, for we know movement or change as present fact, and not as inference from present fact. A sensation whose sense datum is a movement must have duration. What has duration must begin and end. Beginning and ending cannot be simultaneous. One is before, one is after, the other. But, as we have seen, a sensation is altogether and entirely present. Therefore, the beginning and ending, the before and after, within the sense datum must be together and simultaneous. There is here, undoubtedly, a metaphysical problem which I will state directly, but it need not disturb the psychologist. In the sensation of the shooting star, the line of light is not an illusion. The movement is a sense datum, and a movement can only be present in a sensation as a line, for it is indivisibly and wholly present. To suppose that the sensation of movement is not really one sensation, but an infinite series of sensations, in each of which a different point of space is sensed at a different instant of time, is not only a psychological impossibility, but a denial that movement is a sense datum at all. Consciousness, then, is the experience of a present, actual now. This now is momentary, and the succession of these moments is a time series. Also the object, the reality of which we are aware in consciousness, is a succession of events, each of which has its moment of present existence, and the succession of these moments is a time series. But there is a difference between the moments of consciousness and the instance of physical events. The difference is in what we name duration. The moments of consciousness endure. The now of experience is not a point or division between what is past and what is future in the time series, but a time span with definite content. It holds within it what in the physical series may be already past or even not yet. This present actual moment of experience has been called a specious present to distinguish it from a mathematical present. A specious present is a reality of physical nature with no counterpart in the physical universe, and wherever we represent it as existing physically, we find that we are in fact introducing into nature what has meaning only in consciousness. The specious present or moment of experience is the moment in each conscious subject's experience which while it endures he calls now, and within which are his sensations. It is the grasp or apprehension of a reality ceaselessly flowing away and ceaselessly being renewed. It is not a moving point. It resembles rather a field of vision with fixed limits, across which a panorama moves. The quality of the moment is to be wholly now. It is distinct from past moments, which were once now, and from future moments, which will be now. We feel to this present moment that it alone is, and all that really exists, is in some way in that moment. While all past moments are known as a memory of what was, and all future moments as an imagination of what will be. Yet this specious present is not a boundary line between past moments and future moments. It is itself an actual duration, and therefore has difference within it, as well as being itself different from what is excluded from it. The distinctions within it are of two kinds, which by a natural analogy we think of under the forms of time and space. The duration of the moment involves a time distinction within it, 
the extension of the moment, that is to say, the diversity of its content, the fact that all the different senses present objects to the mind in one and the same moment, and the fact that the mind, in attention, can select one or another, can wander over a practically unlimited field, can turn aside from sense to memory and imagination, all within the moment of experience, involves a distinction which can only be presented as spatial. Mental activity in all its wide range falls within the specious present. It is very important at this point to be on our guard against the loose meaning of the phrase, the specious present. In ordinary discourse, we speak of long and indefinite periods as present. Whenever these periods form part of the unity which the action and progress supposes are when they embrace the whole set of conditions of a present activity. Thus we speak of the present conversation, the book we are at present reading, or we may include vast periods of time as when we speak of the present age, the present geological period, or the present condition of the solar system as compared with its supposed condition in a nebula. This of course is not for our consciousness the specious present. Yet this application of the term present has an important bearing on its notion. For our very power to think these vast periods as present depends on our power to imagine a mind for which they would be a, a moment of experience. In effect, we imagine the present moment in which feeling and sensation are immediate, so extended as to embrace these long periods. And also our imagination serves us in the opposite direction. We can suppose our specious present contracted to exclude all but an infinitely small portion of its content, so that the other portions should be regulated to a past or a future as vast as the periods to which we have just imagined it extended, just as in the words of the psalmist, A thousand years in thy sight are but as yesterday, when it is past, and as a watch in the night. So also it is equally true that yesterday may be as a thousand years. We cannot mean, then, by the specious present, some definite quantity of abstract moments, for there are none. We must mean some constant ratio of conscious apprehension to the variable moments which form its content. Let us suppose that we are looking through a microscope, and let us suppose also that our theoretically perfect instrument has an adjustable objective so that any object under observation may be indefinitely magnified. The field of vision will not vary, but will remain constant both in duration and extension, whatever is within it, but less or more of the object will come within the field as the magnification is increased or diminished. That is to say, whether in relation to unassisted vision, the magnification be 50 or 500 diameters, the field is the same. The time required to attend to anything within it is the same. The number of parts or divisions in it is the same. All these are constant, and what is variable is the quantity of the object which will come within the field. This constant field of vision, irrespective of the varying quantity of the object observed, illustrates the nature of the specious present. But we may get a better illustration still. A microscope affects only a visual magnification, and the difference between an object seen under the microscope 
and the same object as it exists for unassisted vision is experienced as a discrepancy between sight and touch. Imagine, then, that some instrument could be contrived which would affect an exactly corresponding increase or decrease in the discrimination of all the senses to that which the microscope affects in the case of vision. Suppose that such an instrument were not limited as the microscope as to magnifying the object so that less of it occupies the field, but could also diminish the object so that more of it would occupy the field. And suppose that with every alteration of visual magnitude, there were an accompanying corresponding alteration in the tactile, auditive, and other senses, and with every alteration, a constant field. Such a field in which all the senses would be coordinated is a fairly exact analogy of the specious present. If we had such an instrument, it would enable us to pass from our system of reference to any other we might choose and to preserve our identity through every change. By making a larger or smaller quantity of the object of our present experience occupy the constant specious present of consciousness and by adapting all our senses to the alteration, it would be as if we ourselves became proportionately larger or smaller in relation to our normal world. The moment of experience, or the specious present, the two terms are for me synonymous, is then the span of consciousness throughout which the reality known is immediately present as sense experience, and within which the activity of the mind in sensation, memory, and imagination is in being. Theoretically, there is no limit to what may occupy this moment, but the moment is itself constant and not variable, however variable in extension and intention, its content. This content, however, though theoretically unlimited, is practically defined in its range by our organization and by the mode of our activity, to a certain system of reference. Thus my whole life, from my birth, might conceivably be the content of one moment of experience. That is to say, it might be entirely present to me, not as memory, but as immediate experience. This would not imply the enlargement of the moment of experience, but a variation of the system of reference. This at least is the view I hold. Against it may be urged the undeniable fact that we are able to, and actually do, measure this moment of experience by a purely objective standard. A certain definite period of our clock time enters it, and neither less nor more. My reply is that such measurement does not determine the moment of experience, but the system of reference within which, and in relation to, which the consciousness is functioning. Whether the view of the moment of experience which I have just given, that it is constant while its content is variable, not in the sense that it is a series or succession of ever new experience, but in the profounder sense that all its objective characters, including space and time, are variable and relative to a system of reference, be accepted, or whether the ordinary conception of an absolute space and time and a variable moment of experience be held. In either case, the concept of a moment of experience gives rise to the fundamental problems of philosophy. These problems fall naturally under two heads, one formal, the other material. One is the problem involved in the duration of the moment of experience. 
the other in the nature of its content, that is, of sense data. The first problem is the relation of psychological duration to mathematical time. The second is the problem of the status of a sense datum. It is evident to everyone who reflects that the moment of experience is not the mathematical instant which divides the past from the future. It is quite obvious that while the mathematical instant may fall within the moment of experience, the latter cannot fall within the former. The reason is clear. The mathematical instant is a point. The moment of experience is a line. The first has no dimension. The second has one dimension. If mathematical time be represented as a series of instants, one of which is present and the others of which are past, then the moment of experience holds within it some instants which in the mathematical series are past and these in the psychological series are still present. This I think no one disputes, but the mathematical instant is also the limit of a series or a succession of instants which are future. Do any of these future instants fall within the moment of experience so that some instants which in the mathematical series are future in the psychological series are present? Or is the present mathematical instant the limit of the series of instants which fall within the moment of experience so that in respect of all future instants the mathematical and psychological series correspond in a present point common to both. This latter alternative is the generally accepted view because while it seems there are many forms in which instance mathematically past may be psychologically present, it is difficult to conceive any form in which instance mathematically future can be present at all. Mathematically future time seems therefore definitively excluded from the specious present. Does, then, the future differ from the past in such way that the one cannot while the other can exist in the present? So far as the concept of mathematical time is concerned, the future is on the same plane as the past. So far, that is to say, as we consider physical events determined by a time order, forming a series standing to one another in a relation of before and after, there is no difference in our concept of time future and our concept of time past. If we suppose that some micromegas of a superworld, for whom our sun is an atom, were to cause the earth to fly out of the solar system as an electron may be shot out of an atom, it would upset all our astronomical predictions, no doubt, but it would not affect our concept of time future. If, then, the moment of experience overflow, the mathematical instant, there is no a priori reason why it should be only over the series behind us and not also over the series before us. Yet it seems difficult, and even in a certain sense paradoxical, to suppose that the present moment of experience can embrace instants mathematically future as well as instants mathematically past. Why? I think it is due to an assumption. We naturally and unconsciously assume that the mathematical instant is original and independent of experience, and that is the moment of experience is the comparative failure of consciousness to grasp or apprehend this reality in its purity. The moment of experience is then the more or less successful attempt to get a sharp focus of a reality 
which itself possesses ideal precision. On such an assumption, there are two very strong reasons for holding that the moment of experience is the stretch of time from the present mathematical instant back through a certain series of past mathematical instants and never forward into the future. The first reason is the law of parsimony. If the mathematical instant is what consciousness is striving to grasp, everything which can be excluded from it will be. In other words, experience will strive to make its moment coincide with the mathematical instant, and so far from darting in front of it will lag behind it as little as possible. The other reason is that the past mathematical instants, having already been experienced, can be retained in the present, whereas future instants, not having occurred, cannot be retained. It seems to me that to assume the independence and originality of the mathematical instant is without any justification. It also leads to a kind of absurdity, for if the mathematical instant be real, then the real has no duration, and the experience of duration is illusion. There can be no ground for such an assumption, just because experience is itself the highest court of appeal. On the other hand, to hold that the moment of experience is original and absolute is not an assumption because experience is itself the ground of all implications, inferences, and assumptions whatever. The mathematical instant is not an absolute reality because in the first place it is abstract, not concrete, and in the second place it is part of an intellectual scheme. This scheme is a device by which we represent reality. If reality be activity, we can only present it to the mind as a continuity of change, and this must appear as a division between what is formed, or acted, or made, and what is forming, or acted, or making, and the moving center of the activity will be represented in thought as a point or limit dividing past and future. The point will be the ideal abstract center of the activity, and the moment of experience will be the concrete concept of the activity, and will therefore of necessity hold within it something which in the abstract is past, in the sense that it is before the abstract center, and something which in the abstract is future in the sense that it comes after the abstract center. But only in the abstract meaning of mathematics will past and future be distinguishable parts of the moment, and, as so distinguished, past, present, and future are unreal abstractions synthesized in the concrete concept. We are not, however, entirely dependent on analysis of the concept of present activity to prove that mathematical instance abstractly future form part of the moment of experience. There are actual facts of experience which are difficult to explain if it be not so. In the case of all expressive action, gesture, speech, writing, etc., the whole meaning to be expressed is intuitively present in every moment of the expression as it proceeds. Were it otherwise, we should be in the impossible position of striving to express what did not exist to be expressed. A musical melody, a proposition, a sentence, even an exclamation, will occur to everyone as cases in point. If, then, expression imply intuition, I am not using the word intuition here in a technical sense. It is impossible to schematize the moments of the expression unless they can advance beyond the mathematical present instant. 
For example, I can suppose that when I am pronouncing the word London, the second syllable is not within the specious present until I have completed the pronunciation of the first, although the first is admittedly within the present when I am pronouncing the second. Psychological analysis of the act of reading has brought out the fact quite convincingly that mental apprehension is always ahead of the actually sensed word. There is also another familiar experience which appears to me to throw considerable light on the nature of the duration of the moment. Everyone has probably at some time had the experience of being awakened from sleep by some sense excitation, such as a knock at the chamber door, a word spoken into the ear, or a touch on some part of the body, and experiencing this sense excitation as the conclusion of a long, intricate, and complex dream. Unless we are to suppose in such cases a miracle of coincidence, we know for certain that the sense stimulus was the occasion of the dream of which it seemed to form the natural climax. Does not this show that a long-enduring physical experience can take place during what in normal waking life we call a moment, and also that its duration can appear to the mind as preceding the event which we afterwards know has occasioned it? The least such facts show is that we can have no more ground for excluding future instance from the moment of experience than we have for excluding past. I will now try and present the problem of the duration of the moment of experience in complete dialectical form. The concept of duration has formal diversity or difference within it. This difference consists of two elements, past and future each of which, in the abstract, and apart from the unity of the whole concept, is a pure negation. The past is not, the future is not, and all that is not past is future, and all that is not future is past, there is no present. The concrete concept in which these contradictory elements are synthesized is the moment of experience. The formal problem, therefore, may be solved in the manner of the Hegelian logic we have a dialectical triad exactly fulfilling the conditions of Hegel's first concrete category, in which becoming is the synthesis of being and nothing. Let us give it the full Hegelian form. The thesis is the duration we affirm to be present. The antithesis is the past and future of which all duration entirely consists, and both are opposite and contradictory to the idea of present. The synthesis is experience, every moment of which holds together the abstract contradictions of thesis and antithesis in a concept which is concrete, universal, and real. But this is only a first degree of reality. The moment of experience implies more than a bare union of the abstract contradictions, past and future, in a duration span. It implies a higher concept. That is, the concept of a higher degree of reality, in which past and future are not independent elements held together by the external relation of the apprehending consciousness. This higher degree of reality we find in the concept of activity. The moment of experience is the moment of conscious activity. In the concept of activity, past, present, and future are a systemic unity, essential elements of an organic whole. The elements are organically present in the whole. That is, the past is not merely past, it is contained in the present, and the future is not merely future, it is being fashioned in the present. 
Past and future are therefore, in the concept of activity, no longer abstract contradictions, but essential to the unity of the concept. Before I attempt to point out the further implications of the concept of activity, I will consider the second problem I indicated, that which concerns the quality of matter, of the moment of experience, as distinct from its quantity or form. The moment of experience is one of a series of moments. We distinguish it from the past moment we remember and from the future moment we imagine. So viewed, it appears to us to endure so short a time that we find it practically impossible to realize that it is, before it has already passed, into the series of moments which can only be remembered. Yet the fact is that as experience, the moment is continuous. It is only from the standpoint of its content that it is forever ceasing and forever being renewed. The objective mark of the moment of experience is therefore the special nature of the content. It is only in the moment of experience we have the kind of knowledge we call sensation. Everyone recognizes it and knows that it is different from every other kind of knowledge whatever. All knowledge is, for the subject of experience, within the moment of experience, even the kinds of knowledge we call memory and imagination. But for the objects to which memory and imagination or fantasy refer are not within the moment of experience as the objects of sensation are. The object present to the mind in sensation is therefore named by some philosophers the sense datum, and the moment of experience is defined by them as the period of time within which an object must lie in order to be a sense datum. The problem, then, is this. Are sense data objects in their own right? Objects which stand to the mind in a relation of direct acquaintance? And is it these objects which give to the moment of experience its privilege? Or is it the nature of conscious activity, the nature of the mental grasp or apprehension of reality? In a word, the nature of life, which gives to the moment of experience its special character of unmediated reality. According to one view, sense data are certain definite objects which at a certain moment are or may be present to a mind. And the moment we call now, or the specious present, is distinguished from other moments before and after, by the fact that it is the only moment in which sense data are also present. We need not object that the moments are described in spatial terms. There is no other way of expressing the meaning. For in this view, sense data are not events which occur, but objects which appear. The opposite view is that sense data have no independent status. They cannot be treated as a class of entities separable or distinguishable from the moment of experience as its apprehended content, for there are no objects which are not events. Let us be clear, too, as to what the problem is not. It is not the question of the real existence of physical objects, nor is it the question of the validity of the inference from phenomena to cause a phenomena. It is not, that is to say, the question of the independent existence of the objects or material things which physical science is supposed to require as its postulate, nor is it the question whether the fact of sensations involves the concept of an independent cause of sensations. Sensation, so far as we are concerned, is ultimate fact. It supposes a sensing mind and a sensed object. 
These are part of its notion, but it does not necessarily suppose that either mind or object is anything at all outside or independent of the sensation. Let us then consider the quality of the moment of experience. Sensation. If we analyze sensation into act of sensing, sense datum, and relation of acquaintance, or into subject mind, object datum, and knowing relation, or in any way which enables us to treat the sense datum as constant and the relation as variable, we have a psychological difficulty which is impossible to ignore. This is that the variety and multiplicity of sense data and their quality or character in the moment of experience are not due only to the variety, multiplicity, and character of the sense excitations. And the multiplicity is not only due to the amount of clock time the moment it covers, there is a qualitative and quantitative difference in sensations themselves, depending on the nature, organization, situation, and special function of the sense organs. To the ordinary view, this offers no difficulty, but on the other hand serves to explain many facts. We classify sensations by their source in the different sense organs before we classify them by what we may call their apport. But the apport is everything, is fixed and absolute, if the sense datum is constant and independent of the act of sensing. There is still a greater difficulty for the view that sense data are constant in the fact of attention. The mind can be attentive or inattentive to its sensations in any degree. I may listen to what someone is saying, my eyes the while fixed on his gesture and action, and be wholly inattentive to what I am seeing and attentive only to what I am hearing, or wholly inattentive to what I am hearing while attentive to what I am seeing, or I may be actively attentive to both at once. In fact, I can turn my attention off and on. I can concentrate it on one minute sensation or expand it to take in the whole range of my senses at once and all within the moment of experience. How am I to express all this if I take the standpoint of objective sense data to which the relation of the mind is acquaintance? A sense datum can admit no difference of degree nor yet can the relation of acquaintance, but attention introduces an infinity of degrees in my actual sense data. The difference between attention and inattention will, on the view I am considering, have to be explained away as an illusion or subjective appearance, for the difference apparently due to attention must be an actual difference of sense data themselves. This leads me to my chief criticism of the sense datum theory. I mean the theory that a sense datum is constant. If we adopt it, we cannot possibly explain the perception of change, and we must suppose that what we perceive and call change is not what we conceive change to be, but an illusion produced in us by the succession of sense data. What we suppose to be change must really be the simultaneous sensing of sense data, which are themselves successive. And there is another fact which we cannot explain on this theory, the special privilege which attaches to the moment of experience. This moment stands out in our lives not only as possessing special and overwhelming importance to ourselves, because in it we are acquainted with the objects which out of that relation we can only describe, but because into that moment is crowded the whole of reality. Outside that moment there is only what did exist or will exist, 
nothing that does exist. These two facts, first that in the moment of experience we perceive change, and second that into this moment of experience in some way, not only are our own reality as minds knowing, but the reality of things known is gathered. Demand of human thought that it should seek to discover their metaphysical ground. They present to us a problem which can only be solved by the method of philosophy. This method is the analysis of the concept to discover its implications, then to follow those implications into the system which gives us the reality in a higher degree. We have seen that in the concept of activity, the contradictions to which the duration of a present moment gives rise are overcome in a systematic unity. Activity implies that past and future are together in organized union in the present. The moment of experience is the moment of activity. The concept of activity implies change. Change is not mere succession, the alternation of existence and non-existence. It is becoming the becoming actual of what was potential. Change implies continuity. The new creation which constitutes it is the new form or order which the old undergoes. Where there is real change, existence and non-existence have no place as categories of reality. The categories of change are making, acting, doing, opposed to which are made, acted, and done. If reality be change, reality cannot cease to be. The absolute expression of it is making itself. Past and future are therefore no longer the distinction of what is not from what is. We have an illustration. We might even say an exact application of this metaphysical doctrine in the scientific concept of energy. Energy is in modern scientific theory the ultimate concept of reality, and the law of its conservation is not a description of facts, nor is it the formulation of a probability based on the observance of invariable sequence. So far as empirical facts are concerned, they are diverse, disconnected, independent of one another. We can classify them more or less conveniently, group them into the phenomena of light, heat, electricity, magnetism, etc. We can even, by observing sequences, predict them with more or less confidence. But all that experience warrants us in saying is that they are or that they are not. Physical science has replaced this idea of existence and non-existence with the concept of a reality which cannot not exist and which preserves its identity throughout complete change of its form or order. When energy completes its cycle of change, it does not cease to exist. It passes from the kinetic to the latent order. It may be said that this concept of conservation is not a fact but only a convenient generalization. It is a generalization, however, implied in the very possibility of physical science, and which cannot be even called in doubt without destroying the basis of scientific explanation. Strict empiricism would in fact as effectively destroy physical science as it destroys philosophy. Observation of fact, which abjures implication, is sterile. So, in philosophy, if we be content to conceive reality as a panorama or moving procession and the mind as a spectator contemplating the passing show, then the moment of experience has no intrinsic privilege. 
its apparent privilege is due to the fact that it happens to be the moment at which we are spectators, and our sense data are what happens to be offered to us at that moment. But conceive reality as change and one moment is at once raised to the privilege of actuality with respect to every other moment. The concept of change appears to me, therefore, to be of capital importance in philosophy. If change be original, that is to say, if change be the necessary, logical, incident of things, and if fixity in every form be the work of the mind, and if it be this original change which we perceive in the moment of experience, then both the nature and the form of that moment are made manifest. The moment of experience is the moment of activity. Activity is the moment of change. Change is the continuity of the past in present creation. Change is not succession, but self-making. The apprehension of change in a moment of consciousness implies, therefore, the holding together, in that moment, past and present, and past as present, an activity of self-making or creation. This is the concept of life. This concept of life is the highest concept we can reach, for in it we grasp intellectually the reality we know intuitively. In the moment of experience we live, as well as know, and we know in living the very reality we objectify in knowing. The whole process of living thought, as distinct from the life itself, is the making explicit, the expressing in the concept what is implicit in the intuition. But as intuition life is all-inclusive, whereas the moment of experience is essentially exclusive, it is an infinitesimal fraction even of our individual life. Whatever be its relation to universal life, the moment of experience is the concentration of consciousness on a small and quite disproportionate part of the full reality of the individual life of the conscious experient. What is the principle of this concentration of consciousness on a fraction of the whole, or of this contraction of all reality into a moment? The moment of experience is the moment of attention to life. The moment of experience is for us a moment of consciousness. When we speak of our conscious moments, we distinguish consciousness from life, and consciousness then appears to us as a form of vital activity, a phenomenon which supervenes on life itself. The moment of consciousness is not a moment of life. That is to say, life is not a multiplicity of moments or composed of momentary elements, some conscious, some not. An infinitely small portion of the individual life comes within the moment of consciousness when compared with the duration of memory and the extension of sense perception. In the activity of attention consciousness moves over a wide range of past and present, lighting up in its brief duration some selection from the memories of past experience, some selection from present sense experience. Life is itself infinitely wider than consciousness, and the moment of consciousness is not the moment of life, but the momentary consciousness of life. If, then, we recognize that consciousness has supervened on life, and ask ourselves what is its nature and its relation to vital activity, two views are possible. We may suppose that consciousness is just awareness, and that the life which has acquired it has thereby endowed itself with a power of contemplating and representing itself and its environment. 
In that case, the momentary character of consciousness will be altogether mysterious, a fact to be accepted but impossible to understand. On the other hand, we may see in its momentary character its true significance. Consciousness is momentary because it arises at the call of a certain kind of activity. It is, as it were, a light shed on the focus or center of activity to serve the action going forward. The terms which we have to employ, light, focus, center, etc., are of necessity metaphorical. Consciousness is the unique experience we know as awareness. There is nothing contradictory in supposing that our whole life, with its continuous past, its full present, and its prospective range and activity, might be, through and through conscious, an awareness evenly dispersed over the whole range of activity, not concentrated round the focus, but such consciousness would not serve the mode of activity for which our whole organization seems contrived. This organized activity requires that all which does not interest the particular action we are engaged on shall be shut out from our consciousness in order that attention at its center may have full illumination. Biology confirms this. It shows us, throughout the whole range of life, species organized for characteristic action within a definite zone or sphere of activity. Every living creature is fixed in and attitude of attention to life. An attitude, bending it forward to the action which is forming before it, closing behind it, and shutting out from its consciousness whatever is not calculated to serve or to contribute to the efficiency of its special activity. To the extent that its action is chosen and free, the life must become conscious, and the mode of this consciousness determines the range of its freedom, and the form or mode of the activity conditions the objective order of reality in the experience. We are able then to deduce the momentary character of consciousness from the nature of life. But, on the other hand, our whole knowledge of life rests ultimately on our experience in the moment of consciousness. It is only, therefore, by the implication of the concept of a moment, itself an actual experience, that we reach the concept of a reality wider and more fundamental than the moment, yet identical with it. This reality is life. It is the philosophic concept of an original activity, not conditioned by the moments of experience, which are the form in which it comes to consciousness, nor by the content of those moments, that is, by sense data, which are the objective aspect of the experience, but itself conditioning the order of experience and the content of experience by the mode of its own activity. We reach the concept by the same process which led Kant to affirm the reality of the thing in itself. But unlike the concept of Kant, it is not a reality by its very definition unknowable. On the contrary, it is known in its immediacy and its form is not arbitrary, but deduced from its nature. There is the alternative theory. We may say, and many philosophers do, that what is implied in a moment of experience is not an original activity creating an objective order, but the independent reality of an objective order. The moment of experience in this view brings the mind into direct relation with the real continuity of a spatial and temporal order and with an arrangement of physical elements within that order. 
this seems to agree with pre-philosophic common sense. It is well, therefore, to follow out the logical consequences of such a theory. In order to appreciate this alternative theory, let us briefly recall the fact. We all acknowledge that normal experience consists of a present moment which endures for a period variously estimated to occupy from 3 to 12 seconds of clock time. Within that moment, we discriminate spatial extension and temporal duration. There is a limit to the discrimination, and many laboratory experiments have been devised for the purpose of determining it. It is said, for instance, that for the visual sense an extreme discrimination is an interval of one five-hundredth of a second. The character or quality of the moment of experience is sensation. It is only in that moment that we have sensation. We perceive and remember in that moment, but it is the sensation to which what we perceive or remember is attached, which gives the moment its distinctive mark. The whole content of that moment is distinguished as present experience from what is past and future. Yet within it, though all content is present, there is a distinction of before and after. This, in general terms, is the scientific and psychological description of the fact we name the moment of experience. What, then, is the problem? The problem is the nature of the unity of the moment and of the continuity of the elements we discriminate within it. If the reality be the 3 to 12 seconds of mathematically measured instance and the definite number of sense data this period covers, then the moment of experience is nothing more than the limit of the mind span of an objective succession. The continuity of that moment will be the mathematical continuity of points in a line and instance in a succession. The continuity of an extension in mathematics means that between any two points another can be found, so that there is never a next point to any point. And similarly, the continuity of a duration means that there is never a next instant to any instant, but that between any two instants another can be found. What, then, is the logical consequence of adopting this view? It is that there can be no numerical identity between the moments, the series or succession of which corresponds with our lives. The reality of life must consist of a series of distinct movements, whose instantaneity and continuity are mathematical. Life imaged as psychical duration must be an illusion. This then is the position to which the alternative theory leads. It was, I suppose, practically the position of Descartes, of Malebranche, and of Berkeley, and it did not dismay them but then they could fall back on the philosophical concept of a deity. Each perishing instant called forth in their view a new act of creation by God. But there is no place in present-day philosophy for such a concept. It is not on this account that I reject it, but because mathematical continuity and scientific causality seem to me wholly insufficient factors to account for the living activity I am directly conscious of in the moment of experience. Consciousness, then, in its special form of knowing or awareness, illuminates our activity at the central point of progressing action. It is concentrated in a focus of attention when the activity is intense and the situation is novel.
It is dispersed and relaxed when the situation is familiar and the action automatic. There is a zone of consciousness within which knowing is sense experience. This is the present which we distinguish from past and future. Mathematically, the present is a point without duration and without special privilege. The last instant of a series going back into the past and the first of a series going forward into the future. Psychologically, the present is a duration, very brief in comparison with the vista of the past and the prospect of the future, but with definite content. The moment of experience is a specious present. It is not an instant without duration, but a determinate span of duration. The moment of experience enables us to understand how history can be altogether present. The moment of actual sensing has beginning and end. Its parts are all in the relation of before and after one another. Yet the whole moment is distinguished by its content as present existence from past and future moments. In the moment of experience, before and after are not past and future, but altogether present in the meaning that they are sensed and not remembered or anticipated. There is nothing absolute in the limitations of a moment of experience. Yet the moment is circumscribed, and its circumscription is in fact specific in living creatures. It is relative to the range of activity. It is the moment of attention to life and the point of insertion in reality. The moment of experience with its grasp of duration is an essential condition of activity. The concept of activity presupposes the past retained in the present and forming the future. Organic activity is the past acting in the present. Activity is inconceivable as mathematical continuity. The beginning and end of an action are not divisible into separate events, and the action cannot be dissolved into a series of instants. There is only activity where the past is present with a hold on the future. Reality is history, and history is self-creative. We see the process in being in the moment of experience. Knowing is not awareness of what is or is not, but the grasp of apprehension of becoming. In the immediate knowledge of the moment of experience, what we are aware of is change, and the object of awareness is an event. End of chapter 6